out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of Shawadiwadi because I recently spoke to their lead singer, Dave Bartram, to find out more about life, love, poetry and all the other groovy stuff. And also, he's written several books, which we find out more about throughout the interview. Anyway, this is it. And after several minutes of casual chat, as you do in the world that is showbiz, we got down to that exciting subject, the early formative years. Dave, tell us about your musical journey. It's over to you. Well, I'm, I'm one of those odd sort of human beings that um, I can't really nail down any, anything. Uh, I'm, my, my tastes have always been very eclectic. And... Um, I, strangely, uh, from the sort of age of nine, I, I was, uh, I, I'd listened to some Ray Charles recordings that uh, didn't belong to myself. I was, I was lent some albums, Ray Charles, Eddie Cochran, um, I'm, not, I'm not quite from, from that era, and um, and I suddenly became fanatical, kind of more on, on the blues side of the thing, but uh, at the same time, you know, had a, had a, a massive passion for for Eddie Cochran, so that kind of stood me in good stead, I, I suppose, yes. uh, going going forward into the into the world of um, of rock and roll. But um, but, but I, I, I idolised Ray Charles, um, and I mean he was the first, but not that I could ever ever come close to licking his his boots. But um, he was the first singer who actually made me want to open my mouth and make a noise. Right. Oh, that's interesting, because I know two people that I've always loved, you know, sort of grew to love, was David Bowie and uh, Lemmy from Motorhead, and they were both born the same year, and whenever they were asked, you know, who their kind of, you know, I suppose their kind of moment was, it was, they both said Little Richard, and then, you know, the yeah. other. But it was yeah. definitely, you know, because they were sort of born just around the war time, and, um, yeah, so yeah. That, that was kind yeah. of seeing Little Richard, and I know John Peel, the DJ, was like, Little Richard Elvis, it was just like, oh my God, what's happened? This is kind sure. of open sure. The doors of perception, so to speak. So, did you well, sort of? I, I didn't really switch on to pop music until until the Beatles came along. Yes, um, but you know, other than the the, the old stuff I I listened to, as I say, I was we, we weren't a, a, a very well off family, and uh, I, I used to oh, just listen to these these um, this Eddie Cochran album over and over and over, and, and the Ray Charles uh, album, and. Uh, it just just made me want to. Well, I, I just love music, and I could, I could bash a, a, a tune out of the the old piano in the, in our living room, and uh, so you know that, that's. I think music was in my blood anyway. Yes. Were your parents musical at all? Did they have a? You mentioned piano. I just wondered if there was a sort of element that you had, you know, relatives or even family who could hit a piano or hold a yeah. key. Yeah. Not, I wouldn't call them musical. My, my mum was one of those. Uh, well, they, they, were, they were quite uh, frequent, actually. I think going back to the sort of forties at uh, wartime, she used to just bash a tune out of a piano with her, her left hand, basically spanning an octave and just hitting any notes that happened to be there. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, yeah, but she, you know, she was musical, and um, once. They, they, they saw that I could knock a, 
a tune out, out of the piano, at, I think at the, at the age of about seven or eight, I got sent for the dreaded uh, music lessons, um, which um, no, which didn't really sit right with me at all. <laughs> and and that was, uh, it was soon after that when I decided that I wasn't interested in um, in playing a piano anymore. I think the piano had actually, by that time, after after the, you mentioned Little Richard, after, after those artists that used to beat the hell out of, of uh, pianos, uh, it, it was all about guitars, and that, that was where I wanted to be. Yes, and did and did sport sort of play a factor? You know, I just wonder because I was grew up in a working class background, and you know, yeah. it, we it was football most days. Yeah. It was kind of kicking a football. Yeah. Did you also have that kind of wanting to play for Leicester City? <laughs> yeah, I, I did actually have, have a couple of trials as a goalkeeper, but um, but I think my, my first love was music. But but I, I, I did I, lo- I love sport, and I went to my first Leicester City game when I was seven, wow. uh, and, and um, you know it's still in my blood now. So so sort of 2016 when when Leicester City won the won the Premier League, it was um, was something that I, I honestly never thought I, w- I would ever see. Yes. But, um, but it was something, you know, it, it, I just got so emotional about it all. And uh, and the day of the presentation, I was watching uh, Liverpool last night receive the trophy, but the day of the presentation was, I think, one of the most moving days of my uh, yes. my entire life, watching Andreas Bocelli sing in the, in the King Power Stadium. And it, oh, it was just unbelievable. And I still have to kick myself that I that actually happens. So, I know, it's quite a surreal yeah. moment, because I did, yeah. you know, there was a sort of a Leicester City fan I knew who, you know, obviously, it was like, mm, fine. you know, you just shrug your shoulders, don't you, and go, well, well, that's fine. But then, you know, nothing yeah. particularly ever happened with the team. And then suddenly it was like, it's a bit weird, isn't it? It's a bit... Yeah, 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 a bit of it. <laughs> I think we, we were nicknamed could have a, a yo-yo team. Uh, you know, we'd be, up, we'd be in the top division, then we'd be in the second division, bouncing around and... Too good for the second division, but not quite good enough for the um, for the top division. But, yes, um, I know. But now, you know, I think we're, we're now probably, I think we are um, becoming acknowledged as one of the the top six, which uh, they always have to seem to to put apart from from everyone else. But uh, yes. but no, we, you know, we're we're a good side. But although post lockdown has been very very disappointing. God, it has. It's been terrible. But yeah. but then, because during the 60s, it was kind of interesting because you had the sort of clean pop sound, even though it was kind of radical and, and the elder gen, older generation were like, oh, my God, what's that? You know, with yeah. st- especially long with hair, the, yeah. the Stones were, were <laughs> yeah. absolutely... Coffee clothes, long hair. Yes. Long hair. And yeah. then, you know, by 67, you really had that kind of the hippie kind of world and the counterculture and people, you know, were starting to do... The drugs kind of started to become a bit of a factor and you had sort of like... Flower power, yeah. Power power, we loved yeah. that, didn't we? And then you yeah. had the Woodstock generation and things were getting very yeah. kind of excited. So during that period, what were your kind of musical taste and direction like at that stage when you started seeing, oh, Jimi Hendrix or, you know, The Doors or Jefferson Airplane? Or were you still thinking, no, I'm still, I'm still, you know, Ray Charles? Or were you just kind of curious? I did, I, I did actually really switch on to that West Coast sound from, from the USA. Uh, bands like Moby Grape, and um, it, it it was it, obviously it was synonymous with the late with the late sixties and uh, Jefferson Airplane as well. I, I love Grace Slick had a, had an amazing voice. Um, so yeah, I, I got swept into that, and 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 I was really really into a, a band 
um, at the time, I think my favourite band at the time was a band called Love. Oh, yes, forever. Yeah. Yes. And, yeah, and, and, and I was fortunate enough, they came, they came, actually came, Love came to Leicester. I think um, it, it was only, wow, it's put, uh, just put my thinking cap on, maybe 15 years ago, you know, long after that late 60s period. Yes. Arthur Lee at the front, and they performed at the De Montfort Hall in Leicester with an orchestra. And it was just, oh, it was just absolutely magical. Really took me to, back to that time when, uh, you know, there, there, there were some, some beautiful tracks at that time. And, yes. And some, some of those West Coast, some of the voices, even Scott McKenzie, who I actually worked with in Germany, his voice just soared and uh, there were some, some beautiful voices coming out of America and the mummers and the poppers, the harmonies, and, and my idols, the Beach Boys as well. Yeah, Pet um, Sounds. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was a magical time for music. Yes, well, uh, I know, because you look at just the releases kind of virtually each month and you went, that's a classic album, that's another classic. A, a lot of them were, you know, we, we, you know, I mentioned Love Forever Changes and obviously Pet Sounds, The Beach Boys, and of course The Beatles were, were, were coming out with albums like, you know, Revolver. And, um, it, it was an absolutely magical time for music and, and a wonderful time for brilliant songwriters. Yes. So when did you have your first moment standing behind the mic on a stage? Did you, you know, what was the kind of the, the kind of musical lineup at that point? Well, the, the first, my, my first experience of being on a stage was when I, I was a, a little six-year-old upstart and um, I performed in a gang show and I was the, at the only cub permitted to perform with the Boy Scouts in a gang show. As I said, I was still there in the middle because all, all the... All the mums are, are, are kind of thinking, oh, doesn't he look lovely? And, uh, but, um, no, a bit of a cocky little blighter, but, uh, which I suppose stood me in, in good stead for, for the legacy years. Yes, well, absolutely. You can't, you can't be shy, can you, when you walk onto the stage? No, always, always loved, was never, never afraid of the, the, the boards, as they call them. Yeah. Yeah, I love to to take centre stage. And did you, I mean, because it's interesting with this, you know, because I used to be quite obsessed with that whole 60s thing and then realising how it must have felt quite strange when, you know, like each generation is a bit like, okay, you've had your fun, now the next generation comes along and obviously everyone gets a bit like, don't don't say that, you know, we're not that old. And it's like, I know, but there's a new group in town. So obviously when the 70s appeared and there was kind of the glam movement, which is so different to the kind of the hippie movement and, yeah. you know, stuff like that, it did sort of... And a lot of those people who I've interviewed, I sort of asked, you know, well, what happened? You know, you were right there on the scene and then suddenly you sort of disappear a bit. And they said, Look, to be honest, you know, we were just tired. You know, we'd been doing this kind of, you know... I don't know, rock and roll lifestyle, you know, all the stuff that goes with it for four to five years. You just need to, you need to go to bed for a while. And then... I, I, I was just about to say that, yeah. I think, I think a lot of those late 60s artists, they, they took far too many substances as well as uh, abusing the bodies with, with um, alcohol and everything yes. else. Um, and, and no, you're, you're absolutely right. You hit the nail bang on the head there. I think they were jaded and they just needed to take time out. 
Yeah, and also you had uh, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison had all died and you had Altamont. So I think there's a lot of kind of like the reality and Charles, the Charles Manson stuff that happened. And I think it was like, oh dear, the party started so well. It's kind of... In, yeah, it, it's kind it of was a, an extraordinary era. Yes. Yeah, 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 and they all, all those artists you mentioned, they all died at the age of 27, didn't 27, they? 27, that, that yeah. dreaded age, I know. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. kind of a bit of a fabled thing now, isn't it? So then, Absolutely. Then sort of as the 70s approached, um, it did. I mean, funny with the seventies because for a long time it all seemed a bit like oh the seventies. It was. It had a. It didn't have the sort of all oh, the sixties. It was like oh that's a bit. But then we look back as you do and you think actually the seventies were much better than sometimes the it kind of appeared. You know, it was almost like if you know what I mean. It was that kind oh, of. Oh yeah. It, it was yeah. that kind of side. But then you start going actually some of these you know this is actually all right. But then you know because there was a lot of political uh, unrest. There was a lot of unemployment. Yep. The three day yep. week was hip here, and there was like divisions in the country, un- unlike now. And um, yeah. <laughs> um, no, no, that's absolutely right. In fact, you know, we were right to the forefront of things. Yes. Uh, during, during that period, you know, you know, those those dark days of sort of from seventy four on, onwards. Um, yes. Yeah, I, I, I remember the Daily Telegraph writing an article about the band. Uh, in, in '79, and calling Shorty Waddy the most recession-friendly band of all, um, you know, and I think I, I think you know uh, the fact that it, music had changed. But when we got to the '70s, we got into that thing of showmanship became very very important as well. And you he tried to sort of outglam the next band. Yes. Uh, and although the music was still important, it, it, the showmanship angle was very very much to the fore. Yes. Well, I know. I mean, it was kind of interesting because you had that early David Bowie, which was, you know, which I... Yeah, exactly. Was, he was a showman. He was amazing. Um, yeah. I mean, he yeah, had, he yeah, had, he'd spent, the, he'd spent the 60s making some pretty um, forgettable records that we wouldn't yeah. know now if it hadn't been for what he ha- what happens later. But then, you know, he kind of clicks and it's like, OK, I've got it. Ziggy Stardust, hunky, hunky-dory, yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. kind of there. And that, that yeah. obviously... But during the 60s, his, his folk doodling was kind of pretty um, forgettable, really. Well, and, I, think so, I think some artists for, from that era, and you, you mentioned Bowie, I don't know, you know, you... You're um, referring to sort of the days when he sounded a little bit like Anthony Newley. Who yes, the classic. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what was it, the Laughing Gnome and, uh, and those sort of things. But but I, I think in Bowie's case, um, though the substances that we, we referred to probably um, gave him a new sort of angle to explore musically. Yes. And, and um, you know, he... Well, similarly, I, I remember reading something about John Lennon and... Um, uh, you know the Lucy and the Sky with Diamonds sort of Sergeant Pepper era, and how um, influenced those songs were by by illegal substances. But um, but also you know how how absolutely magical some of them were. Um, I know the imagination you know. when it when it yeah. kind of, when it kind of works it works, and when it doesn't it's kind of very messy, isn't it? Actually, you know it's like I don't yes, I don't, I don't, yes. I don't think it works that for that long. But if you if you've got a bit of ta- you've got the talent, so to speak. You know, it can sort of help free a certain creativity, but I think that's good. it's a bit of a sweeping statement. But let's face it. But you well, know, it, yes, <laughs> it, it is. But it also relies on the individual and you know yes. the, the sort of strength of willpower as well. Yeah. Uh, because you know, if you once you're hooked on something, that's it. The, the music will will undoubtedly suffer. Yes, but, absolutely. Um, but I, I think it took it took certain people. You know, Bowie being one, obviously. Lennon, uh, another, another quite, quite a number of artists, just 
took them in a slightly different direction and, yeah. and opened their eyes to, to other things. I know. Well, and is. Yeah, definitely. And then, I mean, so how did you sort of get on the sound that you decided to go for? Because at the time, you know, probably everyone says this, no, no one else was, you know, it was like you had... You know, to be honest, I really loved all that glam stuff of, you know, because I was at that age where, you know, there was, I mean, Gary Glitter was like, wow, that's amazing. And Sweet was amazing. And yep. then Alice Cooper, when he did Schools Out, was like, yeah, oh, my yeah. God, that yeah. was just amazing, you know, fantastic. So, you know, let's face it, you know, there was like and T-Rex. And then, then you, you know, you, you sort of came along and it was that different take, you know. So I just wonder yeah. what was yeah. the kind of like, uh, yes, the, yeah, the kind of when you sat down and said, this is what we're going to do. Well, we we got swept in because of record companies and advisors and so, so on uh, to the to the glam rock uh, movement, shall we call it? And uh, we got swept into it a little bit. It was still, uh, as I mentioned before, it was about showmanship. It, it was about sort of being glittery. It was about wearing loud loud clothes, being very very brightly coloured. But but the most important thing uh, for, for, from Shawadi uh, Wadi's point of view. Uh, we had a massive, massive live following, but musically it was it was about the vocals. There was that influence, as I mentioned, from from the Beach Boys, from, uh, from even from the from the Beatles. It was all about harmonies. It was all about about voices, and, and and that was where we really wanted to take the band. And although the the first sort of three or four singles were sort of had that kind of compressed sound that a, a lot of the glam rock records did um we we i think there was a, we had a little another string to our bow shall we say uh in, in the vocally it wasn't just about chanting it, it was actually about you know making nice harmonies and and subsequently re- referring back to the sort of doo-wop era mm. which was which uh, very much it, it influenced uh, three or four yeah, because it's quite interesting because I was thinking about, you know, like audiences and, and you know, 16, 18 year olds, uh, you know, what they're going to buy. And then at that, you know, because the record sales in those days were phenomenally big, weren't they? Oh, unbelievable. And, and so. 60,000 a day, you know, when, when you're. <laughs> Yeah. in the top ten, it was really crazy. And and things, you know, we used to sort of, you need to have Top of the Pops on a Thursday and the t- charts on the Sunday evening, and things would yeah. creep up from number 33 to number 28, and you think, whoa, that's exciting, <laughs> calm down there. You know, and they're, oh, it's 23 this next week, and, you know, a month's time, you might be in the top ten. So everything took its time, you know, it was very kind of a, a gradual, organic process. You, you say that, but I remember, I remember our first single, uh, Hey Rock and Roll, it's... Um, crept into the top 50 as, as it were i think R- record mirror had the top 50 crept into the, the top 50 at, at number 44 a week after it was number 23 uh when we did our, our first, very first top of the pops performance and a week after that it, it rocketed to number six bang bingo that's good which was it? just yeah which was just unbelievable and or, you know life-changing you know, yes. the overnight success kind of thing. Yes. And, uh, although we were playing to larger audiences, um, they were queuing down the street after the, the Top of the Pops performance. Which is, uh, yeah, because you would have also, audience-wise, would have been appealing to those people who 
were probably a bit older who were still buying records. Who it went been... right across the board. It really did, and I, I think that was probably the secret to to Shawadi Wadi's success for sort of for, for ten years to stay in vogue for ten years in a, in what I think at the time you probably still would have described as a, an ephemeral, ephemeral industry. It. Um, I, I, you, you know, once again, you've hit the nail on the head there, but it was that broader appeal that, uh, that, that kept Shawadi Wadi selling records for, you know, for a full sort of decade or more. Yes, well, absolutely, because I, I'm sort of I'm slightly different, but, the, you know, that thing with age, you know, I used to go to Glastonbury Festival a lot, and, you know, people yeah. would go, God, everyone's so young. It's like, no, the 16, 18-year-olds are the same every year, aren't they? You know, they're, yeah. this is their right. We're just all a year older, so everyone looks that bit younger because we're kind of now getting to the next bit. But, you know, the 16, 18-year-olds is always the same. And so with the record buying public, you know, you had that market, but then you had the older market who... You know, who wouldn't have been probably buying the really kind of, I don't know, Jimmy Osmond. I don't know. No, no. Yeah. Actually, they might have been buying Jimmy Osmond. <laughs> but they wouldn't have been buying, I don't know, Alice Cooper, wouldn't they? I don't think that... that probably gen- not. I mean, we, did a, we had a few hard-edged fans who used to listen to our albums. There used to be a guy who worked for, for Sounds. Uh, um, it, 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 it was um, a weekly, like, Melody Maker. There was one, a magazine called Sounds. Uh, and... And this guy was into some really, really weird stuff. But he, he, he came to interview me, I remember, and, and he was really into to what we were doing on our albums. He, he saw sort of a, a writing talent. He could see, he could see inside what, what was going on. And it wasn't just about sort of covering old songs, um, which our record company were, were sort of encouraging us to do as such. But he, he saw that there was, there was a little more to it than... Um, that a lot of people ever imagined. And I think that possibly also helped with the, the longevity. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. the one there were several things I've noticed from doing this. that, And I suppose it's a lot of the bands I've done, you know, the kind of 80s ones, you know, which were... Um, yeah, you know, they, they have a kind of normally a five-year narrative. You know, they get together, they spend 12 months rehearsing, practicing, and then yeah. in the case of, you know, what I was thinking, where you like, John Peel would pick, you know, pick it up, give it a spin, get a John Peel session, they get the first album, things going really well, second yeah. album, a bit tricky, third album, yeah. really tricky. Um, and then, you know, and, and if anybody ever toured America, it was like, oh dear, you know, that kind of finishes them off. So you're, but you, a bit yeah. like David Bowie, because Bowie brought out an album a year in the 70s, you also yeah. had that kind of a, wow, you Guys did not sleep, did you? Into the eighties, absolutely. Uh, continued to, you know, to to have hit albums right right into the eighties, and, um, and and still, you know, even through the the, the remainder of the eighties and nineties, when the band was out of folk, there was still a massive appeal in a, in a live sense, and we were constantly on the road, which was, as you get older, becomes totally exhausting. But um, I don't know, the appeal was still. We, we got to a point sort of, I know, in, in the 90s, when I think we, we were actually grossing more in turnover-wise, um, also because of a, a, a change of man- management structure, but we were actually making huge amounts of money in, in, the, in the 90s. Right, um, yes. And so, and so didn't... And I think in, in many ways we were quite happy to be off the, the treadmill of having to produce an album every year, which... Um, simply because we were you know, 
well, making so much money. It was, it was, <laughs> you know, yes. it was, you know, it was a, it was a golden goose. There's no question about it. Well, absolutely. And one yeah. thing I've noticed, and I'm the same as everyone else, <clears throat> you know, being a fickle fan, and fashions come because that's often what you know apart from the dynamic of a band that kind of does it in there's kind of sometimes the lack of money but then there's also like a few people have said and then this musical then this kind of scene came in like in the 80s you suddenly had that ecstasy and everyone wanted to dance and then in yeah. towards the end you had the kind of seattle grunge scene and then brit pop and you know often with a band it's like oh no one cares about us but you you sell through you know you had that kind of west coast sound with you know the eagles and fleetwood mac you had punk rock you had progressive rock you had heavy metal i mean and and yet the band just sailed on didn't it you didn't stop it's continued absolutely (laughs) you know a huge huge following who were just incredibly loyal uh and no it it just kept on going round and round and round and and when one tour finished we we would start planning the next yes Uh, you know it it was was but as i say it, it was exhausting and at the same time, I suppose it was a little bit frustrating that um, um, the songs that myself and, and, and Trevor Oakes were writing were largely ignored. So it, it was a little bit frustrating that, that we perhaps weren't still um, high profile in a recording sense. But, um, but as I say, you know, the, 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 the vast amounts of, of, of dosh that we were we were grossing was um, was enough to to well. It served as as enough encouragement to get to keep us striving away on the road. Yeah, well, I think that's the other thing is when a band suddenly has to sort of downsize their venue, and then even that struggles to fill. And then you just, I think the kind of, I think it's the energy, you know, the you need that crowd to give you something, because because yeah. as most people say, you know, eight hours of the day touring is like quite dull and boring, and you really don't envy. You, no one would envy you for that. But then when you get on stage for two hours, it's like, oh yeah, okay, this is fine. But you also want a crowd that wants an encore, not just. Actually, there's no. Oh room. no, it, it disappears. But the tiredness once you get on stage, I mean, once once the ego is is massaged and the adrenaline starts to pump, tiredness goes straight out the window. Yes, absolutely. And yeah. then, I mean, because it's interesting, because you, you know, the band are still form, you know, are still going. But then, you know, when we got into this decade, no, last decade, isn't it? You decide to kind of retire from the from the sort of the singing front. Yeah, yeah. So I was I was talking to a guy yesterday about that this experience. You know, it was a it was an anarcho punk band called the X from Holland, which is quite different, really. But he he'd been with them since the late seventies, and then realised actually he just couldn't fake it anymore. He just thought actually I'm not really doing it. What was your kind of reason for sort of thinking that I've I'd want to kind of leave the stage? All sorts of things. Um, obviously, you know the. the the voice is, is an important part, and you know, I used to be able to hit some r- ridiculously high notes and have this, uh, you know, I listen to my falsetto range now that um, sort of soars off the scale. Um, uh, you know, I listen with great pride, and uh, you know, as you, as you get older, you can't you can't do that, and your body doesn't allow you to do that. And and I think you know, when you do have a certain amount of pride in your performance, you start. To doubt yourself, and and I, I always I was always honest with myself, and I, I, I said many many years before that once uh, I cease to enjoy it uh, or get the 
you know, the amount of satisfaction from my performances uh, that, that I desired, I, I, I would stop. And it was simply that. I, I just thought, you know, I was beginning to get tired. Um, some nights I'd go out and, you know, it'd just be like nothing had ever happened. And it, it was fantastic. And then, you'd, I don't know, tiredness maybe would kick in or a bit of, you know, fatigue in, in a different sense. And I don't know. I, I, I think there was a little bit of a loss of confidence. And, and subsequently, I think the enjoyment started to, to subside. And, uh, and that was when I, I decided to, to hang up my, my crepes and drapes, as it were. But, um, but I, I did, um, and not, not many people know this, I did, for, for the, uh, out of friendship to the remaining members of the band, I continued for four, four years longer than I wanted to. Wow, yes. God, so there was quite a lot of, you kind of had a bit of guilt there, didn't you? Yeah. God, yeah. it's kind of it, a tricky one. It, it, is, it, was, it was a tricky one. But, yeah. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, they're, 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 they're good friends. And, um, well, you know, you kind of like brothers. When you're, when you're in a band for that number of years, you, you're, it is more of a brotherly thing. Yes, well, you've, um, you've, you've yeah. been... Well, most people, when you've had that, you know, time, you know, you've had so much complexity friendship wise falling out wise yeah. and then people start struggling with their health or their their parents start struggling or they you know they actually yeah. you know have partners that struggle and you you kind of you know there's certain things you thought god i never used to think about this when i was younger you know when someone tells you that you know they're going through the menopause and you went well okay. no absolutely not you know uh, and, uh, and it's all very uh, humbling because you just think oh yeah oh know. it is and, and, and you know we we alluded earlier to the effects of the, of the drugs. Well, in in a sense, in a tiredness, fatigue is is definitely as as you get older, it, it it does contribute to to your performance. There's no no two ways about it. And you do you know you have you have to have a knee operation or you or, or I don't know you you're being tested. Your hearing's been tested or you know. But, Bodies are not indestructible. Yes. And, and I think when you, when you get into your 50s, you begin to realise that. I know. There's that kind of walk from the bed to the bathroom in the mornings, which is slightly like, oh, I've got a bit of a hobble now. That must be a new yes. thing. <laughs> well, I, you know, I was quoted in, in one of my books as saying, you, know, you get to the stage where you, you wake up in the morning and everything is stiff, apart from what used to be stiff. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it's all, yeah. it's all there. Yeah, and it is like it is like that. It's, yes, um, you know, I, 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 there was there was some. I, I would go out on the road sort of Thursday, Friday, Saturday, do, do three gigs, travelling up and down the country, and on a Sunday morning, home in my bed, I was waking about eleven o'clock, and I was literally just totally and utterly drained. Uh, and you know, it does get to a point when you think, well, this surely can't be doing me that much good. I know, it's a very, it's a tricky one, because a few people I spoke to, there was the guy, Fish, who used to be in Marillion, and, you know, he, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and people are trying Fish to... Um, he's a good character. Yeah, he's lovely, and he's trying yeah. to keep keep the band and everything together, and he said, you know, the thing is, you, you know, now he has to really hit, well, he did anyway, you know, do that European tour of something like 28 dates, 28 yeah. dates in 30 days, you know, because of just yeah. the, the maths and the finance of it. But he said, you know, he really has to have a good mattress now because he's a big guy with a slightly dodgy back, you know. And uh, so he yeah. kind of has that. And I know Niels Lofgren I spoke to, and he said he doesn't want to be away more than 20 days because he just gets so homesick now.
now that he yeah. would just kind of think, no, I'm, I'm, I can't do it, you know, emotionally. Like you said, you know, you have those emotions. You think, God, I didn't used to have this emotion, but now yeah. this is slightly yeah. different. I'm not the same as I was when I was 18 at all, you know. Where You, you, you get to the point where you do realise that you, you, you are not indestructible and that, and that you are actually a human being. And, and I, I think you, you do, you become much more humble. Yes. There's nothing uh, like it, is there? There's nothing quite like that. No, abs- absolutely not. Yes. And, yeah. and you, do, you do you do question what you can do. You know, should, should I still be doing this? Do I look an idiot doing this? You know, it's that, the certain things that, that you do. I mean, you know, I, I used to leap into the air and come down onto my knees and, and almost go into a crub position holding the, the microphone to my mouth. And, you know, when I do gym classes now, and they, and they ask me to, to get down and, and, and do something like that, I, mean, I haven't got a hope in hell. <laughs> um, you know, it's, uh, yes. it, we are all human, and, uh, and our, our muscles do send signals to us to say, look, I don't like doing that anymore. No, I know. Yes, I know. <laughs> if you want a heady rush now, you just have to get up, get up off the sofa quickly, and you think, oh, blimey. That's, that's all you need. You don't need yeah, to... I, I, I actually have a watch, one, one of these um, fitness watches, and if I sit down for too long, it it tells me off. Nice. <laughs> Excellent. We like that. So it's, um, yeah, we're, we're obviously living in a different age now, but um, very different. But, no, but, but no, then, but post, but post band, you've also you've you're still very much part of the the kind of the operation, but also you've branched into other things as well, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I set up my, my, a management company. I mean, we were... I, I think every band in history has had uh, issues with, uh, with their management at some, some point. Um, I think the, the only guy that I've ever known, the only artist I've ever known who's never, ever had issues with his manager was Sir David Essex, oh, whose right. his manager was, was Mel, Mel Bush. A quite well-known promoter, yes. and um, you know, I got to know David quite well over the years, and spoke to him about about his management. He said he never had a contract, and it was always just totally amicable between him and Mel. And um, you know, they, I think he they went on together uh, for about thirty-five years with, with with that arrangement. Yes. But the majority of others um, always had certain issues. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think in, in my own case, I, I was fortunately fortunate to be born with a, a certain amount of business acumen, and um, consequently, after having issues for sort of ten years with the management company, decided to set up my own my own management company and uh, oversee things, as it were, and and it worked very very well. And, and you know, and I alluded earlier to the to the period throughout the nineties when. And the band really did uh, gross uh, enormous amounts of money. It was it was a hugely successful on paper, a hugely successful era for for the band. Yes. um, Well, it's good to it's good to have that because I did once interview Les from the Bay City Rollers. They didn't have good management, did they? Let's face it. No, no. <laughs> and unless and, and it's a, t- a totally different character, you know. Um, you know, much as no, I, we're we are friends, and and I, much as I admire him, no, he's less. To, I think still likes to sort of delve into the rock and roll lifestyle yeah, from, is... from time to time. 
Yes, but then you, you know, obviously it's kind of a bit of a weird one when you step down, but sometimes a huge relief. But then writing, you sort of, yeah. you thought, this is it. I'm gonna, I'm going to sort of. Was that kind of? Did that help process what had happened to your life? You know, was that a moment where you could kind of do a bit of reflection and sort of put in things a little bit emotionally into oh, some sense? Definitely, and the, the written word always fascinated me anyway. And when we were on the road constantly traveling, uh, I was an avid reader and would spend a lot of time uh, in hotel rooms uh, reading and um, a lot of it very much travel-related. And and I, I just had an ambition, ultimately, to jot down some of my experiences and, and put together a book, uh, which which turned into into two books, and then and subsequently it's almost about to to turn into three. So uh, it's 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 something that's become you know uh, very very much. And yeah, you know, I, I I enjoy writing. I wouldn't call myself a gifted writer, but at the end of the day, I know I had to spin a yarn. Yes, and, absolutely. And I think you know that's quite important. I think when you when you put together books and and it's it was something. Even when you when you're talking among friends, um, people are so so interested in sort of rock and roll stories. Mm. Um, they are quite unique in their makeup, and, and often very very humorous. Um, but um, yes, well, you know, no, but, well, it's interesting because I suppose when we were growing up, there you know, hadn't been that. You forget that you know. Okay, you started around the early seventies. Yeah. But pop music was st- still so young, wasn't it? It's was like, oh God, you only had to go back ten years to the almost, you know, roughly to the beginning of it. So there hadn't been a history of what happens next. So no, y- not- you were still at that stage, and I remember the seventies and probably a bit of the eighties, where it was, you know, there was that phrase, wasn't it? It was, you know, people would say it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and and it, it was all very kind of innocent in a debauched way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. Good way of putting it, touch. It was, a, you know, yeah, in, in a certain divorce way, yeah. It's mean, kind of an oxymoron, but uh, yes. yeah, I know what you're saying. Yes, but yes, but I, I have another slight theory, which is quite, um, is not watertight, but I think that passing of time and, and roughly 30 years mm. is kind of when you sometimes can look back on something and it feels quite different. If you were writing about those experiences then, mm. it would probably sound very different and feel different to how you now write about it which is probably with a lot more kind of wisdom and long you know a certain amount of reflection that you can really sum up the narrative and the story of both yourself yeah. and the band which it, you can it, do that, now that's true that's, no, that's, that's absolutely true I, I think you know were you to put together your experiences a little earlier on i think that ego would would form a part of it uh, uh, but as, as you go a little longer in the tooth um the ego is forgotten, and and it is actually about you know, recounting those tales, pretty, you know, as closely um, as you can get to, to how they actually were. Yes. And, one, and you can also reflect on your own behaviour with a bit more honesty, I think, because sometimes you think... Actually, there's no point blaming the other person for an argument because I was kind of the other half of that argument. And well, I, that comes with maturity, doesn't it? It does come with a lot of yeah. maturity. And yeah. then honesty, because I think once you have that, you can then sometimes let go of the situation that you might have been hanging on for 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, and, and, and then some in, in, in many cases. 
Yes. I know, yeah. it's, it's so funny. Yeah. So look, I love a good book um, and, and a rock documentary. I mean, OK, so the books, you've got two out and you've got another one coming, which is fantastic. Yeah. And the, what... the, the two uh, uh, initial books, uh, the first one was called The Boys of Summer, which um, basically was um, from start to finish was, was a tour that um, as, as the, the band's overseer, as it were, uh, I should never have committed to in my, in a, in my wild, wildest nightmares shall we say. Yes. Uh, it was a, basically a, um, a six-week tour of holiday parks, uh, which we didn't know, I uh, didn't really know what, to, what I'd, I'd let the band in for. But um, pretty much everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And, um, and it was a real sort of come down. It really shows the unglamorous side of, of the rock and roll industry, especially for, for a band that has sort of played to... To ninety thousand people in, in stadia, um, it's it, when when you're playing caravan parks to, uh, so I, I don't know. In, in some cases, probably about one hundred and twenty people. It's um, it's it's a, it puts your feet firmly back on the ground. Shall we, shall we put it that way? But um, yes, it's a kind it, of it's it, a mini it's a mini version of Elvis in Vegas, isn't it? <laughs> it well, uh, yeah, it's a, a very much a, a mini version of that, but. Um, <laughs> But yes, it, it, it was a, what a, a bit of a come down, and, and it's, um, it also kind of proves that uh, never just chase a fast buck. Um, you know, always be a little more considered. Yes. Uh, but but it, did, it did make for a very funny read. Um, and, and then the, the second book, uh, All Mapped Out, that basically um, covers my travels uh, in, in, the, in the United Kingdom, and, uh, and quite uniquely, I think, I've, I have actually visited every city in the United Kingdom, um, which each of which uh, has a tale or or tales. Yes, I and, and I thought it was interesting. It was a there was a really good book that came out a few years ago, decades now. Um, Notes from a small island by some. Oh know, yeah, Bill Bryson. Bill Bryson, yes, that's yeah. the man. Yeah, that was yeah. fantastic. So yeah. Oh so, great, great. Yeah, yeah, very much. Uh, in that yeah. That was quite tongue-in-cheek and quite self-deprecating as well. We love that, don't um, we? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the, that's the kind of thing. British public loves that. I know. Uh, and the, um, both books are indeed self-deprecating. I mean, there are stories uh, about, um, um, obviously, quite that massage the ego a little bit, you know, uh, regarding certain achievements and and so on and so forth. But ultimately, I think rock and roll stories do have to be. Um, viewed a little tongue-in-cheek. Yes, well, we've seen Spinal Tap, haven't we? And that's kind yeah. of... You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And are, um, both, are both books still available in... Yes, they oh, are, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, well, that's yeah. that's fantastic. Well, it's interesting you mentioned David Essex earlier because there was a couple of films that came out in the early 70s that he was, he starred in with yeah. people like Ringo Starr and... Yeah, uh, that will be the day. That'll be the day. And, uh, and, and was the follow-up. Dream Boy Racer or something, or...? Something, something like or Stardust or something, and they were Stardust, class- yeah, they were one, yeah. classic. And I mean, have you over the years ever thought, God, you know, we could make a, you know, not you, but somebody coming up saying, you know, we could make a little documentary about the, about the band because you have got the the kind of history and the narrative. Oh. I just wondered if that's ever been a project as well. That funny, funny you should say that. <laughs> I was approached um, in regards to a, a documentary. Um, Little more than two weeks ago. There you go. It's got to be done. Yeah. 
So that, yeah. that, that knocks out my 30-year narrative. That's like 40 years is a passing of time. People go, we need to make a film, a documentary about this band. Because you, know, you can't let it go, can you? I think it's no, a great idea. And you, yeah. must, and you have got quite a lot of footage here and there, haven't you, as well? Yes. Well, I, d- I did actually, the first book, The Caravan Pop, I did actually meet with a, a screenplay writer, with a, a well-known, quite notorious screenplay writer, um, and we, we discussed the possibility of, of, of a series, but um, as so often happens, um, unfortunately, when we started money, it, it really wasn't going to be worth the time I would have had to put in, which is a little bit disappointing. But um, yes, oh, well, yeah. I, I hope your other, I hope the other project comes out because I do think, because I do love my BBC Four on a Friday night, you know, rock documentaries yeah. and stuff. And you know, it doesn't matter the band; it can be Twisted Sister, it can be anybody. And I'm just like, do you know, I, I, I'm the same. I've been, I've been watching during lockdown. I've actually been doing that quite a lot. And I, I watched uh, there were a couple that I watched. One was um, I, I don't, but I'm not a massive fan of country music at all. But there is a there's a documentary about Garth Brooks, and it's absolutely it's a, it's an amazing documentary. Yeah, I know it's uh, interesting, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, and and there was another one, the songwriter um, David Foster. Oh yes, and, that, and that's an incredible documentary as well. Absolutely, it's, the stuff it throws up is is, is just quite unbelievable. I know, uh, I know. It's, it's and, like it doesn't so matter about the band, does it? Yeah, no. I mean. It's, so, so many of, of these people who have become huge figures in the industry, so much of it was, or shall we say, I think the proper word to use is serendipitous. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a little bit of luck, but in, you know, in, in a very positive way. Yeah. Um, well, actually, from I, from doing this, these interviews, I've did. You know, one thing that often comes up is timing. A lot of people say, you know, it was a really good time, and some people said also said actually we missed it by a few years but then we yeah. did something else because we were two two years too early for such a scene but then you know so yeah it's interesting the thing with time. yeah yeah i'm not, not so sure I'd, I'd go along with that one no good I'm glad. It, no 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 that always sounds a bit like sour grapes to me we, yes. we were ahead of our time well we should you should learn to adapt then yes absolutely <laughs> i think yeah. i think it's particular i think with this guy it was particularly about punk and he was like, we were a bit too, we were there a bit too early when punk, you know, before that kind of happened. So when we were kind of two years later, it was like we were 25, 26 and everyone wanted like 18 year old kids. And we almost felt a bit too old ourselves. And also we'd been playing this material and it was feeling a bit tired. So it was like... Well, that, that, that's not strictly true, is it? Because the, the, the Stranglers were in exactly the same boat. Yes, uh, that's I, true. I mean, <laughs> yeah, they were all in their mid thirties by the time Bump started. I know, and, and actually, and proceeded to make a killing. Yes, and uh, Debbie Harry was in her thirties. So. Yeah, that's why she wasn't a, a youngster. No, no, um, it wasn't. She wasn't. So, look, Dave, just the last question, which I'm always curious about. I mean, what would you have said, or could would like to have said to like an eighteen year old self just starting out in that world of you know rock and roll, pop, entertainment? Yeah, well, one thing I always say to kids, I'm still, I did go through a period actually um, in the sort of late 90s to early early 2000s of, of managing a few artists, so um, so I was able to put thought, forth, you know, well, the benefit of my experience. Uh, but um, I think in t- if, you, if you have the ability, uh, if you, and, and you have the drive, 
and the will to succeed and the will to make your own luck, then things will happen. Uh, but, you know, you, I, I've known so many talented kids who kind of, I don't know, meet a girl or whatever and they lose interest. And it's, it is, you have to have tunnel vision to su succeed in the music industry. Yes, it's interesting because I, apart from, you know, I do love music, but I also love sport. And actually most of the people, football players who make it often get quite a lot of rejection early on. Oh, and, yeah. And they, and, but the people that you always hear these stories, like, oh, this young kid was absolutely brilliant. He was the best. But I yeah. think it was because everyone, you know, he knew he was the best. Yeah. It could have been a woman either. But, you know, it was like everything came too easy. So when it became a bit harder and they had to put the hours in, and then they got their first knock. It was a bit like, oh, that's them gone. You know, whereas when, like, Roy Keane, you know, just got rejected, rejected, yeah. you're too small, you're never going to make yeah. it. It was like, yeah. you know, he could take those kind of criticisms. And um, and I think most it, football players do, really. You know, Just take a strong character. You know, that that, that is, you, you, you're quite right. Um, some kids that have this incredible talent probably... Um, well, other than the likes of sort of Cristiano Ronaldo, Messi, um, who were just you know absolutely gifted and was still willing to put in the hours. Um, I don't, some kids, it goes to their head. There was a lad who was supposed, supposedly going to Leicester City, who was was an amazing talent, and at the age of fifteen, he he th thought he he was the absolute bee's knees, and um, his career is subsequently taken a complete nosedive. Yes. Uh, and it, you know, it is, attitude is part of it. And, and I know in, in, in sport, um, perhaps more so than in, in uh, the rock and roll industry where you get unscrupulous people sort of in, in the back rooms, um, I think in, in sport there has to be that willingness to work with other players. You've, you've got to be a, a part of the team, otherwise you're not going to succeed no matter how talented you are. Yes, and, it, and it, you know, that's why football managers are so important because they they can mould different personalities together and, and and make it work. I know. The, the, yes, that that's quite a gift, and the same with the band. Actually, you know, making it yeah. all sort of gel and yeah. to sort of make keep it all it, tick. Yeah, take it to yeah. make it tick. But look, this has been amazing. Well, thank you ever so much for your time, Dave, and um, really appreciate this. And when it's I it's a do... pleasure. I'm sorry we didn't get the Zoom thing together, but. Um... That's... That's modern technology for That's you. I know. We've got yeah. one thing. That's always good. We've got the phone. Yeah. Good old yeah. phones. Actually, a lot yeah. of people now don't have a landline either. It's like, oh, no. No, that's, that's a fact. But, um, yes. well, well, my landline comes free with my internet. So. I know. But um, <laughs> I think it's like old technology now, isn't it? So uh, Almost. Yeah. Tricky. Look, well, look, have a great day and, and best of luck for the uh, the game at the weekend. No, it's good talking to you, David. Put forth some, uh, some very... Some very interesting questions. Oh, that thanks. was great. Oh, it was yeah. Frank Worthington, wasn't it? He was. Oh, the... Elvis, we used to call him. Oh, man. Uh, that, get that goal against Ipswich Town when he died. I knew Frank well. He's, Frank sadly has uh, really serious Alzheimer's now. Oh, God. He which, was... is, which is very sad now. Now, I often used to see, when I used to be out doing the, the nightclubs in, uh, in, in Leicester going back many, many moons, I would see Frank would be the only footballer that would be out on a Friday night with a game on the Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Frank. He was such a class act, wasn't he? Oh, great, great. Very, very talented footballer. Oh, yeah. cool. OK, look, I'll let you go, but yep. thanks again. It's been amazing. And, and, and to you, David. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye. bye. 
And that was me in conversation with Dave Bartram from Shawadiwadi. And uh, yes, go and check out his books. They're fantastic. Um, anyway, what can I say? Yes, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It's C86show. And uh, yes, like I said, all those social media platforms, which we love so much. Anyway, and all these shows have been archived. You might be interested. It might might just change your life. Anyway, you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Just do C86 show. Anyway, this has been David Eastall. Have a great week. <laughs>